0: Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first 3 orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart at life to cart.
1: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Behind the Knife podcast uh, discussing a case of hepatocellular carcinoma. My name is uh, Adam Yope. I'm the Chief of Surgical Oncology at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and I'm joined by Gilbert Marama, who is a surgery resident uh, in his PGY3 year at the University of Texas Southwestern, as well as by Caitlin Hester. Who is a surgical oncology fellow in her second year of fellowship at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston? Uh, welcome, welcome, Gilbert and Caitlin.
2: Hi, thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for having us. Glad to be here, guys. So, what we're going to do is is uh, kind of go through a, a case, a typical case that we see uh, with the papillary carcinoma, and hit the high points of what we're looking at uh, from both a a preoperative fashion as well as an interoperative fashion and a postoperative management. I think hepatocellular carcinoma is an interesting tumor um, in that it both has the oncologic effects and as well as you have to deal with the heterogeneity of the chronic liver disease. So without further ado, uh, we'll start with the case. Uh, So the case is a 57 year old female uh, who has a longstanding history of hepatitis C-related cirrhosis. Approximately 10 years ago, she was treated with interferon alpha for her active viremia And despite treatment, uh, she's still on her last uh, blood work, demonstrated active viremia with hepatitis C. Uh, she has no history of decompensation, uh, no history of ascites, encephalopathy, or variceal bleed. She presents to our clinic with an MRI, which shows a 3.5 centimeter mass in the right lobe of the liver in segment five, uh, encompassing on segment six, that has arterial enhancement on the early stage of the MRI and delayed washout. So really the first question, I guess, uh, that when we look into this with a, a person that's presenting with chronic liver disease, um, is really imaging wise, what really constitutes an HCC? Um, Dr. Hester, what, what, how do you, when you look at a, a new patient in your clinic uh, with a liver mass, what kind of raises your red flag or ra- raises your radar for, for an HCC?
2: Yeah, so I think there are some classic radiographic findings for HCC. One is arterial hyperenhancement. The other is capsular enhancement, separate from the uh, hyper of the tumor itself. The third is washout on the delayed uh, contrast phases. And then um, the fourth for me would be any interval increase in size from prior scans. Um, and those are all based on the LIRAD system, which is a, a radiographic staging system, it stands for a liver imaging reporting and data system. And it uses those criteria uh, to determine the risk assessment of each individual lesion in someone who is predisposed uh, to HCC. So
1: it brings a bigger question into play. And a lot of the liver tumors that we see in in clinic, um, the first thing that happens is is we talk about obtaining a liver biopsy. And I think with HCC, it's an interesting thing in that the the imaging is very classic, as Dr. Hester mentioned, uh, with arterial enhancement, either on a CT scan or uh, MRI, and then delayed washout. And that's the sine qua non for the diagnosis of HCC. And there are different categories uh, of the four the diagnosis of masses within the liver that are concerning for HCC. Um, And as she mentioned, the LIRADS classification, which is very commonly used. It's very similar. The way I look at it, it's very similar to the BIRADS uh, for breast cancer imaging. Uh, And there's a lot of sensitivity involved as you get up to a LIRADS four and a LIRADS five. So Gilbert, what are, what, now that we think that this patient probably has an HCC, and I'll describe it to our listeners, it's about three and a half centimeters. Um, It's impinging on the main right portal vein, um, and it's very close uh, to the right hepatic vein, one of the accessory branches. What are you looking at, Gilbert, when you're working through you know, in our clinics and and when you're going to be a budding surgical oncologist in your clinic of how to decide what the next course of treatment is for this patient? Yeah, certainly. So uh, the main things I think of when I'm seeing these new patients and
0: working through their scans is one is, uh, is oncologic resection the appropriate thing for the patient? And so, um, especially with liver masses, anything like nodal disease or Extrahepatic hepatic disease kind of raises a red flag for me that the biology may be such that surgical resection is not a good option for them. Um, anatomically, as I look through the liver, I'm also paying attention to things like impingement on the biliary structures, the vascular structures to get an idea of technically, is this a tumor that would be resectable in the candidate or not? And then the other kind of baseline, uh, which is important in this patient is baseline liver function. So any cirrhosis or um, this patient with a history of hepatitis C, I'd, I'd want to know, do I think this is a patient who would have enough functional liver remnant after an operation to, to do well?
1: What lab values are you specifically looking at when you're working up this patient? So I'd be paying close attention to
0: bilirubin, INR, platelet count, um, sodium, things that can kind of help me get an idea of the MELD score, the Child's Per-Q score, as well as um, How, if there's any baseline liver failure in this patient?
1: Yeah, and I think that's very important. I think what we're trying to do as surgeons, especially when we're seeing these patients, um, is, you know, for lack of a better term, is we're trying to place this patient into part of our algorithm. Um, Oncologically, can we remove this this tumor? Um, You know, and then technically, should we remove this tumor from an underlying liver disease? And I don't think we're going to get into the debate about transplant versus resection um, here because I think that's a, that's a debate for, for another day. Um, but I think what we're what I'm looking at um, as, as somebody who would be interested in resecting this patient um, is the idea of a combination of things is the child's pew classification um, and as well as plus or minus the MELD score. Because there's data on both the MELD score and the child's pew classification as being sensitive for how patients do after the operation. Uh, but more importantly, what I'm also looking at is, is platelet count. Why, why, why is platelet count so important, Caitlin? Why do we look at platelet count um, for patients when we're trying to decide if we should resect them for hepatocellular cancer?
2: Yeah, so I think it gives you an overall sense of the function of the liver um, from a a filtering standpoint. So if there is a a lot of portal hypertension, then the platelet count decreases. So um, it's a surrogate uh, and an easy surrogate to look at in the lab values to see if there's actually portal hypertension present. The other things you can look at is the size of the spleen, Uh, the the length of the spleen um, is another uh, good surrogate for portal hypertension, as well as looking for any varices uh, on the CT scan.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right. I think what we're looking for are are ideas of of a decompensated cirrhosis, and that would be more picked up by the child's pew. And then looking at surrogates of portal hypertension, Um, the patient that we described doesn't necessarily have them. There's no obvious varices on, on axial imaging. Uh, she had an endoscopy approximately six months prior, which showed no evidence of varices. Um, and she also doesn't have a recannulized paraumbilical vein. I think those are all three things that are really, when in combination with a platelet count, all kind of tip us in a different direction that maybe surgery is not the right idea for, the, for these types of patients. About 10 years ago, there was a nice study um, done from the multi-institutional collaboration uh, that was led by Shisher-Maitel, where they actually looked at platelet count as a surrogate for portal hypertension, and and, in their study uh, demonstrating that 150,000 seemed to be a magic mark for uh, portal hypertension, and after liver resection, patients not doing as well, having increased complications, including post-hepotectomy liver failure. In our hands, um, we've taken that down a little bit. I think most most of us will look at 100,000 as kind of that idea. If you're going to do a major liver resection uh, in a patient who is, is cirrhotic, and most patients with HCV are cirrhotic, um, I think that that seems to be kind of a good guideline. If it's just a small tumor, um, that's going to be just a wedge resection. Uh, off of the left lateral aspect of the liver. I think taking that platelet count down a little bit is, is more than reasonable, but I think you have to be very judicious with that. Gilbert what other tests would you do for this patient you know we know that this is HCC I'll tell you that her platelet count was 295,000 her bilirubin was 0.5 her albumin was 4.1 and her INR was 0.9 so technically a child's A5 cirrhotic so what other are there any other tests or workup that we need to do prior to moving forward?
0: I would complete the staging workup with a CT of the chest.
1: So what what in your mind's eye, what's the likelihood that a patient with just a solitary lesion in the liver, um, that's HCC, are going to have hepatic disease to the lungs? Uh,
0: I think it's less likely in this patient with isolated liver disease, but there's a high risk that they, they may have uh, occult fatastases that are unaware.
1: of. Yeah, it's pretty low. Um, I think we all do it. Um, it's more dotting the I's and crossing the T's, um, but the a solitary liver lesion uh, with HCC, the likelihood of having a, a pulmonary metastasis is very low. Um, what are the more common sites of metastasis with HCC? Because I think that's important to look at as well in this patient.
0: I think nodal disease is a, is a common metastatic site that you'll see in these patients.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. In, in most tumors, I, I would say, yeah, especially with like colorectal liver metastasis. It's hard, I think, in patients with uh, hepatocellular cancer and especially hep C. Um, they all have nodal enlargement, and it's mostly due to an inflammatory process from the hepatitis C. Uh, the big ones that I carry around are adrenal um, and bony metastasis. Um, The bony metastasis isn't subtle. We don't get bone scans on anybody unless they're complaining of pain. Uh, But I will take a look at both the right and the left adrenal just to make sure that they don't have uh, metastasis.
2: The NCCN guidelines calls for bone scan only if symptomatic.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right, Caitlin. Um, Is there any other blood test that you want to get, uh, Caitlin, before we kind of go down the line of stratifying this patient for liver resection?
2: Yeah. uh, Anytime I'm dealing with a cancer, I want to make sure that I have a serologic marker. Um, So I would get AFP for HCC. And I do think going back to a point that I don't think we addressed um, the role of biopsy to confirm the diagnosis I think that it's important for the listeners to understand that HCC is a radiographic diagnosis. You do not need tissue diagnosis for HCC. So in this patient who has a longstanding history of HCV uh, and who has uh, radiographic findings consistent uh, with hepatocellular carcinoma, that is enough uh, to make the diagnosis. And someone you are unsure uh, if this really is an HCC, that's when I would get a biopsy
1: yeah I agree. I think if there was a questionable imaging finding, um, especially uh, if you do an MRI or a or a cat scan any kind of dynamic contrast imaging and it has um, not exactly ideal either washout or arterial enhancement you have a couple options you can either repeat the test with an with kind of the the, the concurrent or the the adjacent test so if you get an MRI, you would get a cat scan and vice versa in order to perform a biopsy um, of the lesion. So now we have this patient. What do we do? You know, it's uh, this patient obviously, you know, needs the t- where the tumor is impinging on the right portal vein. Um, so likely needs a right hepatectomy. So when you're looking at these patients, Dr. Hester, how do you decide is is, is this patient going to tolerate a right hepatectomy?
2: Um. I think there are two things that I look at. One is the actual volume of the liver remnant. So if we do a right hepatectomy, the right liver usually constitutes about 60% of the total volume of the liver. Um, And then considering uh, the underlying pathology uh, and the character of the liver of the patient. So in someone who has a normal liver, no history of cirrhosis, you only need 20% uh, future liver remnant. Um, for someone who has cirrhosis, forty percent is the minimum. So, in this patient who has a history of cirrhosis, who we are planning to take at least sixty percent of their uh, liver volume, I would uh, consider adjuncts to help hypertrophy the uh, future liver remnant.
1: So that begs the question: What adjuncts are there? How would how do we make what is how do we make the left side of the liver grow? So the two that
0: I'm familiar with are portal venous embolization as well as the ALPS procedure.
1: Yeah, talk to us a little bit about what portal vein embolization. I mean, how does that that work? How do we do it? Um, You know, how does that increase the provide compensatory hypertrophy? So the liver derives a majority of its blood
0: supply from the portal vein, but it also supplied by the hepatic arteries. And so the concept of portal vein embolization is prior to operation. um, You go in and IR typically does it, but you can embolize the side of the liver that you're planning to resect. So in this patient, it would be the uh, right uh, lobe of the liver that we would be embolizing the portal vein for. And over a time course, you kind of Observe her response to the liver, and typically you'll see the contralateral side hypertrophy in response to that ischemia, um, and hopefully increase the future liver argument before operation.
1: Are there any other, Caitlin? Are there any other kind of adjuncts that you would do in addition to portal vein embolization to make the make the hypertrophy even greater? Especially if you're worried about somebody that has kind of a marginal liver,
2: yeah, volume. Um... So I think there are two approaches if you think someone is not going to respond to isolated portal vein embolization. Um, So in someone who I think may not have uh, the degree of hypertrophy that we would hope for um, and risk factors for that are diabetics, anyone with prior uh, liver resections um, or in a, a staged hepatectomy setting. Um, I would consider doing a simultaneous hepatic vein and portal vein embolization, uh, which has shown uh, increased rates of hypertrophy. The other option uh, in HCC uh, described by Ogata is to do a sequential taste followed by PVE because uh, hepatocellular cancer is um, fed via the hepatic artery. So if you do a, a taste followed by a PVE, you actually stop the growth of the tumor while creating hypertrophy. So those are the, the two things that I would uh, consider. I think in this one, I would just do PVE.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that um, portal vein embolization um, is usually enough alone. Um, I know there are there is data uh, with combining portal vein embolization and hepatic vein embolization as well as combining it plus or minus with Y90 or TACE, um, and that showed this incredible compensatory hypertrophy, or the left side of the liver growing uh, fairly dramatically. Um, however, um, I think those are very for isolated circumstance where either the portal vein embolization alone does not provide enough hypertrophy, um, or you're looking to gain um, a significant increase in your in your growth rate. Um, the real big thing is, is is you really want to calculate the volume preoperatively. Um, and it, it, it's a time-consuming process, but it's one I don't think that anybody who does a lot of this surgery regrets doing. They regret not doing it and having the biggest fear that we all face is having post-hepatectomy hepatectomy, liver failure. We're on post-op day three or four. You notice the bilirubin starting to increase over five in um, the IR increasing as well. So how do, how do we calculate? Is there, is there a formula, Caitlin? How do we, how do we calculate the future liver remnant?
2: Yeah. So um, what, what I use, I, we used it both at UT Southwestern and MD Anderson is the kinetic growth rate. And um this is the, uh, it's a dynamic measure uh, that looks at the degree of hypertrophy at the initial volume assessment divided by the um, number of weeks elapsed after PVE. So the the growth of the liver of the time after PVE divided by the number of weeks. And if your liver has hypertrophied at a rate of greater than 2% per week, that is a strong prognostic factor that your patient will do fine after a hepatectomy. So um, patients who have a KGR that is less than 2% have a higher rate of post-hepatectomy liver failure of about 21% compared to those greater than 2% who have 0% post-hepatectomy liver failure.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's to calculate the, the future li- liver remnant, I think is very easy. I mean, it's a very... And we can give you the formula. It's calculated by essentially multiplying your body surface area of the patient um, times 1267 and then subtracting 797 from that total. And that gives you the total liver remnant. Um, And then individually, there are programs that you use uh, via the computer to actually put regions of interest along where you're going to save. Um, so the surgeon itself will put, or your interventional radiologist, or in your particular institution, will put regions of interest around to calculate how many kind of volume um, of the left side predominantly that you're leaving behind, and then you just simply it's just numerator over denominator, um, and I think kinetic growth rate is is really has taken to be the best way. Um, to demonstrate or to reduce the amount of post hepatectomy liver failure um, before we move on to kind of the operative uh, considerations we'll talk kind of i think kaylin you had mentioned um uh, alps can you talk to us a little bit about what what alps means
2: it's very hot yeah.
1: topic and controversial in our world
2: Yeah, I can talk to you about it. I've never personally done it, but I have read about it. um, And I know some surgeons uh, still do this, but ALP stands for uh, associating uh, liver partition surgery, and it includes portal vein ligation uh, for stage hepatectomy. And so what you do is actually you go in, do an exploratory laparotomy, you ligate the portal vein, and then you you also do in-situ splitting of the liver along the falciform ligament to induce rapid hypertrophy of the remaining liver. Um, and so it's, uh, and then you go in about nine days later um, and you do your completion hepatectomy. Again, this isn't something I've seen, but it's a similar concept uh, to inducing hypertrophy of the liver.
1: Yeah, I think it's um in a cirrhotic liver, I think it's a it's really a double edged sword um, with ALPS. I think the more most of the studies on ALPS happen in institutions and areas where there's a lack of interventional radiology, um, so they're not able to do uh, portal vein embolization, um, and I think the morbidity and the mortality rate, even especially liver rate related mortality, is quite prohibitive in patients that have underlying cirrhosis, um, like our patient here with HCC. Uh, So we're taking the patient to the operating room. So, Gilbert, what kind of incision do we typically make for these types of patients if we are going to do a right hepatectomy?
0: Make a right subcostal incision and have the option of extending uh, midline as well.
1: Yeah, I think that gives us the greatest access. Um, and Can I
2: interject a little bit because we use a slightly sure. different uh, incision at MD Anderson. Uh, we do the inverse Makuchi incision where we actually um, take our midline incision down to the umbilicus. And then we extend over laterally. And so it's not a subcostal. It actually, we feel like it gives much more, much better exposure, um, especially during right liver recessions. So just a little tweak on, on that.
1: Yeah, I think most people will use some variation of a modified Makuchi. So, I mean, the traditional Makuchi incision actually involves an upper midline incision with the right subcostal extension. Um, and also going into the rib space and uh, the seventh and eighth ribs, uh, I don't think anybody in the United States typically would do that unless there was a tumor um, near kind of the near the right hepatic vein and inferior vena cava takeoff, just because of the morbidity after of the procedure itself. So now we have the the patient open. Um, and we're going to do a right hepatectomy. What are your thoughts, Gilbert, on, on, on the use of a, the Pringle maneuver? And can you tell our, our the listeners or the podcastees what a, actually a Pringle maneuver is?
0: Certainly. And so um, use of the Pringle maneuver in these operations is surgeon-specific uh, at this point. There was a time when it was used in all um, hepatic resections, but I think now it's much more dependent on surgeon preference. Um, but essentially, for the Pringle maneuver, you put your fingers through the foreman of Winslow, and you want to gain access to all the portal structures uh, to cut out the portal vein, as well as the um, arterial supply to the liver, the portal triad.
1: Yeah, and it's there. there's a lot of studies um, that have been done looking at this, this idea of ischemic preconditioning. Um, where you do the a routine use of a Pringle maneuver, um, essentially it will help hypertrophy of the the contralateral side and also reduce um, the odds of post hepatectomy liver failure. Uh, so, how how often or how long can we leave the Pringle on if we get into if we're using the Pringle um, or get into any kind of bleeding where we require it? So certainly less is more,
0: um, the shorter your ischemic time, the better. Um, but typically I believe anywhere between, uh, 15 to 30 minutes is the maximum you'd want to see for Pringle maneuver.
1: Caitlin, how are, how are you using it now? I know that, um, I think we're, we're at MD Anderson, you have a little more, I think a liberal use of the Pringle than I think probably than, than we did back in, in Dallas.
2: Yeah, uh, we use it routinely and, um, we do intermittent, uh, Pringle maneuver and we'll, there's no magic number. So we'll do like 15 minutes on five minutes off or sometimes 18 to 20 minutes on, and then eight minutes off of reperfusion. So depending on the extent of our Pringle, we do a little more, uh, reperfusion, uh, interval. So, depending on what kind of progress we're making, we may extend uh, the the time interval that we're on Pringle. Yeah, and I, I think
1: it, I think there's I think two big camps with the use of the Pringle. It's kind of the the groups that decide to use it on every case, um, and then the groups that have kind of taken more of a the approach of I'll use it when I'm getting into bleeding. And I don't think there's any right or wrong answer to any of that um, by any stretch. Um, I think it's important that, you know, when you put the Pringle on that you actually have somebody that's going to keep the time on how long you have it off. And then when you give it off, you, you, you look at the clock and say, I'm going to have it off for five minutes. Cause I think surgeons as most people are very poor with time, and they will say, oh, it's been off for five minutes when it's actually only been off for a minute. So I think we're very careful with that. Um, talk to us a little bit, Gilbert, about one. I think one of the biggest kind of transitions or improvements in liver surgery um, has been the use of peri anesthetics um, or peri anesthetic, um, how the anesthesia team treats these patients. Uh, and especially with a low CVP or fluid restriction. So walk us through, I mean, you can kind of describe what what we do a little bit here, and I'm sure Caitlin, um, very similar to MD Anderson. Walk us through what what low CVP and fluid restriction means to you. So to me, um, it's uh, permissive hypotension in the operating
0: room. It's also trying to titrate to a goal-directed fluid resuscitation as well as a CVP. And so, typically, what we see here, we try to keep the CVP below four or five during the operation. Um, it actually allows us to use less of the Pringle maneuver in our practice at UT Southwestern because it's thought that keeping the CVP low also will reduce some intraoperative blood loss. Um, it also keeps from hemodilution. So, one of the big issues with liver surgery could be the coagulation um, issues and risks afterwards. And so, by keeping fluid resuscitation low and low CVP, you mitigate some of these um, issues in the immediate post-operative period?
1: Yeah, I think it's the number one thing that's really changed the mortality rates on liver surgery, and especially with cirrhotics, um, and we'll talk about how we go through the liver parenchymal transection in a minute, but it's when I first started um, doing these on the right side of the table, we utilized a lot of placing central venous lines, and I think we've really gotten away from that. Uh, but what we haven't gotten away from is this idea of really running these patients dry in the operating room um, and also utilizing things, uh, vasodilators, um, using uh, nitrate components, either sublingual nitroglycerin, um, or you can use, you know, hang uh, nitro and titrate the, the blood pressure. Um, and I think he hit the point right on the head, Gilbert. It's, it's really kind of this permissive Hypotension. Don't be afraid. You know, if the anesthesiologist tells you that your mean arterial pressure is sixty, it's okay. I'd rather have it be sixty um, and have a bloodless field, um, especially when you're working along the middle of hepatic vein, uh, than you know the blood pressure be mean arterial be hundred, but the CBP be twelve, uh, because you can literally cut across. Not that I recommend that you do, but you can cut across. One of the hepatic veins. If your CBP is very low and your blood loss will be very small. So, I think a good way to look at it is: is if you, you know you keep your CBP high, you actually are going to lose a fair amount of blood.
2: And true? other things that the anesthesiologists can help you do um, is low tidal volume ventilation. So we do that a lot here too uh, to help with the uh, CBP.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a it's important communication. Right. And I think that's with anything in surgery and especially within uh, liver surgery, especially for HCC. Um, So the big controversy of doing liver resections is this. How do you go through the parenchyma? I can't tell you how many questions I get or how many questions. There are panels dedicated to how you go through the liver parenchyma. Uh, Caitlin, how do you go through the liver parenchyma? After we taught you the right way to do it, how do you now do it?
2: Well, I will say that the right answer is to do whatever you feel comfortable doing. So in my practice, and if someone offers me a job, I'm going to ask for a CUSA and a tissue link. Um, that is how we do our parenchymal transections here at Anderson. It's how I prefer to do them. And I have seen uh, other methods and I do appreciate those other methods, Dr. Yope. Um, but uh, what I'm going to to do is the CUSA and the tissue link. And then I think the most important thing is feeling comfortable with what you're doing and, having really good control of inflow and outflow. uh, I think that's a very important part of the dissection too, that I don't think we're going to have enough time to talk about. Um, But those are all very important aspects.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think the the issue is is this, if if we've, over the last 10 years, I think there's been about 30 or 40 different sessions in some of the uh, larger conferences about how you go through the liver. If there's that many sessions, there's no right answer. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It's about your comfort level with the tools you have, whether it's the KUSA, the tissue link, uh, using the old crush clamp technique where you take a Kelly or clamp or a peon to go through the liver, uh, to the ligature or even the, or even the, uh, stapling devices. It's all about your comfort level more than anything
2: else. And you have to be comfortable when you're doing this right. Hepatectomy, you're going to be skeletonizing the middle hepatic vein, Uh within the parenchyma. So whatever you feel comfortable doing is what you need to do.
1: Totally agree. And I think the use of interoperative ultrasound really helps along that way as well. Um, I think the big thing with, with, with this, with the right hepatectomy, is, is you're getting inflow first, um, and then you're taking the outflow. Um, so you're taking the portal vein and the hepatic artery hepatically, um, very early in the case. And then you're taking the hepatic vein a little bit later with, and usually most most of us are doing this with stapling devices, vascular staplers, uh, to make it to make it much easier on us. Um, so after Gilbert, you're being on the floor, you know, being in your PGY three here, you're, you're taking care of these patients. Um, we give these patients a ton of fluid. Um, we you know, don't. Why? Why? <laughs> Why is that? Why do we give more? I think we give more fluid um, for livers and probably most operations. So I think it
0: lends to two things. One is in the post-operative phase, the patients have now kind of gotten out of the operating room. Uh, We've been running these patients at low CVP and restricting our fluid resuscitation. So um, we can, in a sense, catch up to the fluid that we were withholding for concerns about blood loss intraoperatively. And then in addition to that, depending on the size of the liver section, patients typically will lose a fair amount of um, volume as well as oncotic pressure for liver surgery. And so getting albumin in the postoperative period or other fluid resuscitation is key to um, maintain their their homeostasis afterwards.
2: And I do think that that is the standard teaching. But I will say um, in fellowship, what we have been doing is actually continuing to run those, the patients dry. So we don't actually give a lot of albumin or fluid and we're okay with a little bit of AKI. Um, and, and just so they don't develop ascites and we don't have to give them a lot of diuretics. So we have an ERAS, uh, Standard protocol where the patients actually get KFOS uh, postoperatively, and it runs at 100 per hour for the first eight hours, and then it drops to 75 and then to 50. And then once they're tolerating any clears, uh, we, we take the fluids off completely. So we really don't give albumin boluses. Um, and so I think there are different strategies uh, to how you approach the fluid balance uh, in the postoperative period.
1: I think we've all could agree on interoperatively after we've keeping the patient uh, dry for say a three or four hour operation that you're probably going to give anywhere between 500 uh, cc's to a liter of fluid interoperatively Um, and I think that's pretty common because what you're trying to do is raise your central venous pressure Um, so if you do have you know, a linear tear in like the middle of paddock vein or one of the side branches. You'd rather know that intraoperatively to repair that than postoperatively. Yes, sir. So now we've done this right hepatectomy. Final pathology comes back as a well-differentiated HCC with negative negative margins. What do we do next, Gilbert? How are we going to follow this patient with a a well-differentiated HCC? In the patient with the well
0: deferring to the HCC, um, there's a discussion to be had depending on risk factors of the tumor and the patient of adjuvant therapy. But uh, I would start with just staging CT scans uh, months down the road after their operation.
1: I think most of us, how we'll follow these patients is, is very, I think it's become more standardized. Um, and it's all based on absolutely positively no data. Uh, so if any listener has data on this, this would be great, it would be <laughs> an incredible paper. Uh, but really how I think we follow it here in most institutions is really within the first year to two years, uh, we'll get Q3 month imaging uh, because there seems to be a bimodal recurrence for HCC within the first year. And the first year is thought the recurrence is thought to be due to the tumor itself that you've resected. And then after a year, we tend to space that out a little bit um, to about every six months going forward. And that's because of the underlying liver disease. And those are based on the Easel and the AASLD guidelines for normally following patients with hepatitis C. I think Gilbert had mentioned uh, the role of adjuvant therapy. What do you think about adjuvant therapy for HCC, Caitlin?
2: So I don't think we have any data. Um, that supports the role of adjuvant therapy. The trials that we have for systemic therapy are all in the advanced setting and show benefit of serafinib. This is the SHARP trial, serafinib. Um, And when we try to apply that in the adjuvant setting, there's no difference between providing the uh, serafinib versus just observation Now, there's increasing enthusiasm for the use of uh, dual agents, uh, acetabev, and again, that's been shown in the advanced HCC setting. So outside of a trial, um, I don't think we have any data to support uh, routinely giving uh, adjuvant therapy.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, it's, it's interesting. And with HCC, I think we're about 20 years behind other cancers. And that we really don't have any effective HCC. That, that those trials have been done, um, you know, giving serafinib in an adjuvant setting uh, with HCC, and they've been utter failures. There's a trial right now undergoing uh, called the IMbrave 050, uh, which is giving a tezolizumab and bevacizumab, a PD1, PDL1 inhibitor with a vegF inhibitor, um, based on the previous IMbrave trial, and, in an adjuvant setting. And we'll know more data on that approximately about two years. So unless the patient's on a clinical trial, um, there's no real kind of support for doing adjuvant therapy. The, real, the next and I think the last controversial issue is, you know, this patient has active hepatitis C. Should we treat this patient with uh, DAAs, um, you know, or the direct antivirals for hepatitis C or not? What are your thoughts on that, Kayla?
2: I think it's extremely controversial, Um, and I'm actually interested to hear what you have to say because you actually treat a lot more HCC than we do at Anderson. But so I think the data is conflicting. There are some studies that show that administrating DAAs in someone who is hepatitis positive post-curative resection, there are some studies that show that it actually increases the risk of recurrence and some that show that it decreases the risk of recurrence. And so it's a very hot debate. And when I look at um, systematic reviews, it seems like it's not actually the agent, but the timing of the agent that really matters. And so if you deliver the DAA before six months, then it actually increases the risk of recurrence. But if you deliver it after six months, it decreases the risk of recurrence. So what I have gathered is that it is best to deliver it at an interval after six months following resection.
1: So Caitlin set me up. It was like literally throwing me an EFIS pitch to hit over over, uh, the green monster. So when DAAs first came out, it was incredibly controversial um whether you should treat patients with curative therapy um like a, a surgical resection or an ablation or even curative taste that you've you've rendered with no active disease and so there was a lot of data initially showing that as you reduce immuno, immunologically you drop quickly um the rate of hep C, you actually increase the recurrence rate after resection. So about two years ago, um, one of my partners here, Ahmed Singhal, um, led, uh, he was very, we were very interested in this because we weren't, sh- we, as a group, we weren't sure if we should give DAAs or the direct acting antivirals for hepatitis C patients. Um, and so we put together this large cohort of, of groups. I think it was about 10 or 15 groups Uh, It's a paper that's out in gastroenterology from 2019. Um, And what we showed is is that in patients that had a complete response to HCC treatment, DAA therapy was not associated with increased overall early recurrence. So we really have to to start treating patients with DAAs after their curative therapy. Typically how we'll do it, um, we'll do it about three months after our resections. Uh, we typically don't do it prior to resection just because, uh, we like to get the patients into the operating room as soon as possible. Uh, but I, I, hope that the listeners, uh, you know, take, take that home with, you really need to treat the patients with, uh, the DAs just because it reduces the complication risk. So I think we're out of time. Uh, and I, I really appreciate, uh, both Dr. Hester and Mm -hmm. for joining us tonight. This has been awesome. Uh, Liver cancer obviously is is on the rise. It's the fastest growing solid organ tumor in the the country, in the United States. And I think there's a lot of nuances with this. And I hope we helped kind of walk you through what we're thinking, um, both at UT Southwestern and now that Caitlin's at MD Anderson and how we treat these patients, so. Thank you so much, Caitlin and Gilbert.
2: Thank you guys so much. And I hope some of the listeners, uh, we've converted you over to budding surgical oncologists.
0: I feel it is. great talking with you guys tonight. Bye-bye. Oh,
1: Until next time, dominate the day.